All right, so 1 Kings chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know that you know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in time of war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, but you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, do you come? And he said, and she said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom was turned about. The kingdom is turned about and become my brothers, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. And then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request to my mother. I will not refuse you. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother as his wife. And King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anatoth to your estate, for you deserve death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now when the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king replied to him, Do as he said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. 
The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner. Verse 33. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of the descendants, his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for the house of his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Verse 35. The king put Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. And then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kedron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. Verse 39. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Akish and to Mekah, king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath. Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Akish, to his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone for Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord solemnly and warn you, knowing saying, know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever, you shall die. And you said to me, what you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king said to Shimei, you know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David, my father. So the Lord will bring back harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went. He went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. You may be seated. On the inside of your bulletin, you'll see a place to to take down notes. And again, keep your Bibles open to 1 Kings chapter 2 as we work our way through this uh, great text of Scripture. Brothers and sisters in Christ from Central Baptist Church and friends and family members, I want you to think back over your life and ask yourself this question. Have you ever been a part of a family or an organization that was unstable and dysfunctional? Think about that. Over the years, I've conducted many church interviews, and it might surprise you that more often than not, people have backgrounds of unstable, unhealthy dysfunctional homes. Or maybe you've worked for a company that was characterized by turmoil, abuse of authority, and strife between employees. Speaking of unstable environments, when I was a public school teacher, I felt like I was on board a sinking ship. Many of the students had lives that were spinning out of control. Uh, The classroom environment was chaotic. There was a lack of peace among the student body, fights always breaking out. There was strife between the administration and the teachers, and there was strife between the teachers and the students. What a great place to work. (laughs) But the hope is that when you come to church, you'll find something far different than what you see in the world. Something stable, something strong and solid and firmly established. You know, people come to church, they're looking for that. They're looking for peace. They're looking for love. They're looking for refuge and safety. But it's terrible when you come to church and that it isn't that way and that you find the same instability and dysfunction that you see in the world. Brothers and sisters, this should never be. Would you agree? This should never be. When people come into the church, they should see something far different than what they normally experience in the world. In the world, you have dysfunction, dishonesty, disunity, And instability. But in the church, you should find people who love each other. You should find that the dividing lines of the social classes have been broken down. You should find a kingdom of people who are ruled by a good and gracious king. And the result is love, joy, peace, and stability. That's what you should find in the church. Health, strength, love. These days, when people ask me about Central Baptist Church, I tell them Central Baptist is getting stronger. 
by the grace of God. We're becoming more established. But that hasn't always been the case. Six years ago in 2017, our church was in a state of crisis. But by the grace of God, we've overcome many of the challenges that were plaguing us and we're getting stronger. But I never want to go back to those times. I'm so glad for who we are and how we are today and I never want to go back. I want us to be firmly established from now until the Lord returns. So the question, brothers and sisters, is how can we be certain that we are growing in health and that we are being firmly established? How can we make sure that that's happening, that this church is only getting stronger? You think about a building like Union Station. You guys all been to Union Station downstairs or downtown? Downstairs. Yeah, it's right downstairs, guys. So Union Station downtown. Um, Amazing building. Think about how firmly established and strong that building is. You cannot help but stand and be in awe of that building. It's magnificent. It's strong. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. Or you think about a tree like the one I saw yesterday at Bud Park. I went to an afternoon barbecue park on the south side of Bud Park. If you've ever been there, there's a gazebo up on the hill. If you go up to that gazebo and you look, there's just this massive sycamore tree. Like it would take three of me to just like, you know, hug that tree. It's huge. Um, and I just stood in awe of that tree last night. So strong, so massive, so firmly established. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want our church to be like. Where you think about a strong family that has deep relationships who love and care for one another, even though that's rare. Think about that picture. Or consider a strong, well-established church that's striving to love love each other and preserve the bond of peace. That's the vision. That's the goal. That's what we're fighting for. We don't fight each other. We fight other things so that we might have those things. So last week, we began our sermon series in the book of Kings. Kings was written to the Jews. They had been exiled. They had been kicked out of the promised land because of their sin and their unfaithfulness. And so the book of Kings is written to answer two questions. Why are we here? They were suffering. They were in exile. They were slaves. They were in slavery again. They started in slavery in Egypt. Now they're in slavery again in Babylon. Kings is written to a people enslaved and it's answering the question why are we here and is there still hope once we were a stable kingdom but now our sin has ruined us we've been removed is there still hope yes there's still hope for you to become a stable kingdom God says that's what this book is about in chapter 1 last week we saw that David had chosen his son Solomon to be the next king in chapter 2 we'll see that his kingdom was Firmly established on three principles. That's that's where we're going today. Here are the three principles that we must follow if we want our church to be strong and firmly established. That's what I'm fighting for today. That's what I'm preaching for. In hopes that our church would long continue and long be be a strong church. Like Union Station, the building, or the, the massive tree, or a strong family or a well-established, loving, united fellowship. So here we go. Three principles we must follow in order to have a strong and established church. Number one, this one might make you a little bit nervous, but it will become clear. (laughs) Execute or expel the wicked. If we're going to have a strong church, we must execute or expel the wicked. That's what we see in this chapter. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to preach the passage, which means that I will show you different verses from all over the passage to support the point. Okay, so I'm preaching the passage. It doesn't mean that I'm starting in verse one and going verse by verse by verse by verse. Okay, but I'm going to preach these different points and show you where I get these points from the passage. Okay, so you have to follow along. So we have to expel... Or execute the wicked. Point number one. And there are four examples of this in the text. The crafty. The disloyal. The rebellious. And the disobedient. All of these four different types of wickedness or sinful people must either be executed or expelled. Again, the crafty. 
the disloyal, the rebellious, and the disobedient. So first of all, we must, if we want this church to be strong, we must be willing to deal with sin, right? And that's what we see Solomon dealing with in the kingdom. He's, he's, he's rooting out sin in the kingdom. And we see that in verses 13 through 25 when he roots out the crafty Adonijah. Do you remember the story how it reads? Adonijah, he comes to his mother Bathsheba. Key verse, verse 15. Check your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 15. Adonijah says, You know that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. Stop there. The kingdom was yours? Was it, Adonijah? Are you sure about that? And he says, All of Israel fully expected me to reign. Are you sure about that? That's, that's not actually the case. What he's saying is very confusing because it's contradictory to the truth. Yet the truth is mixed into it. If you notice what he said there, he said, however, the kingdom has turned about and has become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. Now, there's the truth. Thank you, Adonijah, for telling us. Well, that's a half truth, actually. Right. He mixed the lies into it. So now it's just this confusing message. See, he's not being straightforward. He has an agenda, a hidden agenda because he wants leverage. He wants to manipulate the situation because he still wants the throne. The truth is that the kingdom did not belong to Adonijah. He said the kingdom is mine, but it never was. And that's why he was trying to steal it away from his brother Solomon in chapter one. And we saw that last week by plotting together with Joab and Abner. Chapter one, verse seven, if you want to check that reference later on. But Adonijah was conspiring so that he might take the crown through crafty means. He's trying to deceive Bathsheba. And this is a setup. He wants leverage. What does he ask for in the end? He says, here's my one small request. Would you please grant me Abishag the Shunammite? Now in chapter 1, Abishag the Shunammite was uh, a, a young lady that they brought to King David towards the end of his life to keep him warm and to attend to his needs. Chapter one, verse four says the young woman was very beautiful. She was in service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now, why would Adonijah be asking for Abishag? Well, if you look in chapter three, verse one. It says Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Do you see what's happening there? Kings in those days would marry for the sake of an alliance or for the sake of a contract or making an agreement. So if Adonijah marries Abishag, who was David's Um, attendant at the end of his life, he could easily use that for leverage and say, look, my, my father, he gave me this woman as my wife. There was this agreement that my father and I had. You can see how he could use that for leverage to promote himself and to begin to lie and to deceive again. In verses 19 through 21, Bathsheba tries to set up Solomon And so she goes along with the plan, which is unbelievable, really, that she trusted him. And she goes to Solomon and she says in verse 20, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So he makes a promise that he ends up not keeping there. He says, I won't refuse you. Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, his wife. And and Solomon immediately sees through it. He sees the plan. He knows what Adonijah is up to. He's trying to manipulate the situation. He's a crafty man. He's dishonest. He's deceitful. And he's still trying to usurp authority. And he's still trying to exalt himself and be the king. But in verses 22 to 25, we see that Solomon passes the test. He doesn't fall for it. And then he passes judgment on Adonijah. It's interesting when you when you look at this story that you have in chapter one, Adonijah 
sacrificing sheep and oxen at the serpent stone. If you remember that verse, it's worth looking back at. It's back in chapter one, verse nine. See that Adonijah sacrificed. I'll wait for you to turn. Chapter one, verse nine. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fox and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone. See, that's foreshadowing. That's all, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when, when the serpent himself, the devil, was trying to, um, de- to deceive Adam and Eve. And in chapter 2, we see a, a similar pattern to what we saw back in Genesis where the, uh, the evil man Adonijah is going to try and exalt himself and become the king, but he does that through uh, a woman, in this case Bathsheba. And so he, he, he works through Bathsheba. He manipulates Bathsheba so he can manipulate Solomon. Same pattern that we saw back in the Garden of Eden where Satan manipulated the woman to manipulate Adam. And then, the, and then there was uh, the sin and the rebellion against God. So there's just this similar pattern happening here. But only this time, Solomon doesn't fall for it. And he proves himself to be a worthy king. So the first kind of evil that we must expel would be the the crafty. Secondly, the disloyal. Notice in verses 26 and 27. Abiathar the priest, he is expelled from the kingdom. Solomon says to Abiathar in chapter 2, verse 26, the, the priest said to the king, or to Abiathar the priest, the king said, go to Anathoth to your estate, for you deserve to die. But I will not at this time put you to death. Why did he deserve to die? Because he had uh, broken his relationship with, uh, with Solomon. In chapter 1, he had conspired with, uh, with Adonijah. And so because of his unfaithfulness, he deserved to, d- to die. And, David, and Solomon said, go to your estate, for you deserve death. I won't put you to death at this time, for you shared in my father's affliction. So Solomon, verse 27, so Solomon expelled Abiathar. He expels him from the kingdom. He, he kicks him out. Abiathar had seen the opportunity for self-promotion, and he didn't remain faithful. And so he was expelled. Instead of remaining loyal to the true king, he had gone along with Adonijah's plans. The next example we see of expelling the wicked from the kingdom or uprooting sin is in verses 28 through 32, where Solomon uh, executes Joab. And if you remember the story, Joab hears that uh, Abiathar has been you know, expelled and he knew that he had supported Adonijah in the rebellion. And so he he flees to the tent and he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. So he's he is he is hoping to find mercy. But the orders have gone out for his execution. And yet in verse uh, 28 or 29, it says, when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord. Behold, he is at the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah and said, go strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, the king commands you to come out. And did Joab, did Joab obey? No, he's rebellious. He's prideful. And he says, no, I will die here. So Benaiah takes the word to Solomon. Solomon says, very well, strike him down. See, Joab had refused to follow the king's orders, not only in this case, but he had killed two other men against the will of the king. Joab had killed Abner, the commander of Saul's army. If you go back sometime and read the story in 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, there's a story about Joab killing the, the commander of Saul's army. And also he murdered a man named Amasa in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Because of his jealousy. Those are are long stories from uh, prior history for the sake of today. We're going to make it short and sweet. And you can go back and read those stories and what exactly Solomon's referring to. But the bottom line is that Joab was rebellious. Whenever the king was not right there in in, in present with Joab, he would take matters into his own hands. 
He was a ruthless man. He murdered these other two men. And at this point, it's all coming home. The judgment is coming back around to him. And so we see the prideful and the rebellious are being dealt with and rooted out of the kingdom. Verse 32 says, The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner and Amasa. And so their blood, may their blood come back on the head of Joab. And so we see Solomon rooting out the prideful and the rebellious. And finally, the disobedient in verses 36 through 34, we see the story about Shimei. And if you remember him, he was the man who had thrown stones at David when David had to flee the kingdom. One of David's sons had rebelled against him. His name was Absalom. And King David had to flee the kingdom. And on his way out of the city, this man named Shimei met him. He was a descendant of Saul, the previous king. And Shimei was throwing stones at David and cursing him. And uh, yet when David was reinstated as the king after Absalom's death, David said, I'm not going to put you to death. I'm going to show you mercy. And so here's Solomon once again extending that mercy and that grace. He said, here's the line. Don't cross it. Stay in the city. Don't leave the city. As long as you stay put, no harm will come to you. But what does Shimei do? He disobeys the clear command of Scripture. Verse 43, Solomon confronts Shimei and says, Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? And the king went on that you, you know in your own heart all the harm that you did. In verse 46, the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down and he died because he was unfaithful to the commandment that he had been given. He was disobedient to scripture or disobedient to the commands. So there, there's the teaching from the scripture that if we are going to have a firmly established kingdom, that we have to deal with sin and we have to deal with evil people. As long as we live in a fallen world, that will always be the case. We must always be alert, be vigilant about sin and the damage that it can cause or, or evil people that are rising up within our midst. But you notice the final line of the story today says the kingdom was established in the hand of King Solomon. Once he dealt with all of his business that he had to deal with, the kingdom was established. So the question is, how do we apply this principle about executing the wicked or, or it's the other, uh, the word there that he, the uh, Abiathar, the priest, expelling, expelling and executing the wicked. Well, as individuals and as a church, we don't execute anyone, do we? Of course not. But we do execute sin. That is what we have to battle against. That is what our true enemy is in the wars against. It is against the evil within ourselves and even in our midst. But first, let's deal with this individually. And let's talk about executing the sin of craftiness or manipulation. Remember, Adonijah was a manipulative person. In chapter 1, verse 7, he had conferred with with uh, Joab and Abiathar the priest. He convinced them that they should join and support him. He was, a, he was a very manipulative person. And you might be thinking today, well, I've, I'm not really a very manipulative person myself. But we must beware of the darkness and the shadows of manipulation in our own hearts or the sin of craftiness. Because people are very manipulative or deceitful by nature. We can see this in our children. Any parents out there, have you ever noticed that your children are manipulative? (laughs) And you can see it coming from a mile away. It's almost like as soon as they ask you the question, you're like, manipulation. Here it comes. (laughs) All right. And that's the way we all are. We're manipulative by nature. Some parents are kind of looking around at their kids right now like, hey, you need to listen to pastor right now. Again, you might think I'm not a manipulative person, but you have to think about the root of manipulation. Manipulation is just the fruit, but the root is deception or deceitfulness. Now ask yourself, are you a deceitful person? And if you're being honest, 
which is hard for deceitful people to do. You have to admit that we all struggle with being deceitful. It's in our very nature to do so. So ask yourself these questions. Are you a straightforward person? Or do you find yourself withholding your true thoughts and feelings in conversations with others? Are you transparent in your communication? Or do you, do you hide things? Are you secretive? Are you crafty? Do you make a habit of confessing your sin? Or do you keep it to yourself and allow it to be in control? We heard Brother Mario's testimony today saying there was, a, there was a season in his life where he was very secretive about his sin. He wouldn't tell people what was really going on in his heart. And he was deceiving us. And that's not the case anymore. Now he has come clean. Now he has openly repented. Now he is following the Lord Jesus. What is motivating you at any given moment? Are you living for God's will and God's glory? Are you trying to manipulate other people or your circumstances to get something that you want to satisfy your lusts? If you're being honest, we can, we can be manipulative people. <laughs> but that sin has to go if we're going to be a strong and established church. Secondly, what about the sin of disloyalty? We saw that Abiathar was drawn away from his loyalty to David. At one point, he had been willing to suffer with David. He, when David had to flee the kingdom and he was running for his life from Absalom, Abiathar was right there by his side. But by this point in time, he broke his loyalty. He was lured away from his loyalty to David. And he began to listen to the voice of another man. So ask yourself this question, is there anything drawing you away from your loyalty to the true king? Maybe it's success or money or some sin that's more precious to you than your loyalty to Jesus. Or maybe it's a position that would take you away from a healthy church. Sometimes that can be the case. Oftentimes people think, oh, I can get a promotion if I just move over here to this city or this state. Have you even thought about whether or not there's going to be a healthy church there for you to be a part of? What should be the first thing that you consider when you're, when you're making big decisions like that? Other things that could interfere with our loyalty, the fear of man. You know, if you notice back in chapter one, there's something that it says here about Adonijah that stands out. Chapter 1, verse chapter one verse 6 says, His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? In other words, his dad never checked him. Dad never disciplined him, never kept him in check. But look at the next thing it says. He was also a very handsome man. And he was born next after Absalom. So according to the birth order, he would have been the next king. So it was reasonable that he would be the king. He's also really handsome, really good looking. He was also a real smooth talker. And so people like even people like Abiathar, the priest. Now, Joab, he was he was a bit, you know, he had his issues. Right. But Abiathar was a priest. Even a good man like Abiathar fell for this. Even a good man like Abiathar began to Fear man, begin to look at those outward appearances, begin to look at those gifts and lose sight of the man's character. See, be very careful who you're looking at and who you're listening to. They might be a very dynamic speaker, but if they don't have the character and the heart of God, then they can draw you away from the Lord, away from your relationship with Jesus, away from the church. We must be careful who we fear and what we have our eyes on and what we esteem. And the best way to be sure that you're being that you're not being drawn away is to abide in the word and stay close to your brothers and sisters in the church in a healthy church. So the best ways. About the sin of pride is pride a problem in your heart? Joab, unwilling to submit to the orders of the king, come out. Solomon ordered, come out. He says, I will not come out. 
King David says, do not harm the young man Absalom. Joab himself killed Absalom. Joab knew that it was a time of peace, and yet he murdered these other two men and violated the law. He could care less. He was prideful, rebellious, rebellious, stubborn. So what about us? Do we have a problem with pride? How do you know if you have a problem with pride? Are you difficult to get along with? Are you a team player? Or are you always out for yourself? Do you respect the leaders that God has put in your life or not? How often do you just take matters into your own hands? Men and husbands, do you respect the elders of the church? Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that will be of no advantage to you. That's Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Are you submissive? Are you respectful? Do you follow leadership? Men, brothers, wives, do you submit to your husbands and respect them? Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Or do you strive against them? Wives, do you have, are you characterized by submissiveness and humility or do you have a problem with pride? Younger women, do you respect the older women? Titus 2, 3 to 5, older women are commanded to train the younger women. Younger women, are you teachable? Are you trainable? Another question for you to go another layer deep into the heart. Are you trainable by any of the older women? You know, sometimes young people are very selective about who they'll listen to. No, I respect, you know, I respect her because you know, she's, she's older and she has a big house and, you know, she's been in the church for 10 years. But this other, this other lady who's calling me to account and speaking the truth to me, I don't know if I respect her as much. What really matters is, are they speaking the truth to you? And is that a godly woman who's talking to you? Sometimes younger people are very selective who they'll listen to. But don't be picky. That shows a problem with, it can show an indication of pride. Children, do you obey your parents or are you stubborn and rebellious? Joab refused to submit to the leadership of the king and did whatever he wanted to when he wasn't in the king's presence. We could remember the command of Paul in Colossians 3 verse 22. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We must execute or expel the sin of pride before it destroys the unity of the church. We can't be firmly established, loving family as long as we insist on being proud in our hearts. The final example that we saw in this text was disobedience to the commands of the king. So how do we expel the sin of disobedience to the commands of the king? Well, we must confront and correct each other with the word. If someone in the body is not living in accordance with scripture, we bring the word to them. We speak to them in love and grace and a spirit of gentleness in hopes of reconciliation and seeking restoration. But we speak to them the word. We bring the word, not our opinions, but we bring the word. This is what scripture says. This is the direction that you're going. Come back to the word. Let us not be a people who are violating the commands of scripture. Parents, we can discipline our children. Again, we're talking about teaching others to obey the commands of the king. Parents, we teach our children this all the time. We have to make the expectations clear but then be faithful and consistent in our follow-through of discipline to teach our children that here are the commands of the king and we can't break these commands of the king and have peace and harmony in an established home. So that's individually. What about corporately? Quickly, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13 Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, meaning those outside the church? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
Purge the evil person from among you. So as Mario talked about today, because of the, the consistent problems that he was having, we, we had to bring him into a process of church discipline. And it wasn't enjoyable for any of us. It was hard for everyone. But the point was that we would be able to surround him with people that, that loved him and that cared for him and that could help bring him to a point of restoration. And thank God that Mario repented and he's sitting in the pews today. That's not always the case. Paul says that there are times that people persist in their sin, their rebellion, and they must be removed from the church. Why? Because the church is meant to be a stable environment where people love and obey Jesus and love his commandments and love one another. And that they can have open, honest relationships with people that they trust and people that aren't being crafty and manipulative and prideful and trying to take advantage of them. And so as a church, we hold each other accountable to the word of God. And we speak the truth in love to one another so that we might build up the body so that we might become more and more like Jesus. And the more and more like Jesus we are, the more that we will be firmly established, rooted and grounded in love. But sometimes we must expel the wicked. But what about execution of the wicked? You know what? That's never our job as human beings, is it? But did you know that the Bible says that God will execute the wicked? This isn't just an Old Testament thing. God still executes the wicked in the church today. Our job is to expel the wicked, but God is not afraid to execute those who are living in rebellion against his commandments. If you remember the story in Acts chapter five, you can go back and read it sometime soon. But Ananias and Sapphira, they were trying to manipulate and deceive the church. And the next thing you know, they dropped dead on the floor in front of the entire congregation. And Peter said, you have not lied to men. You have lied to God. We must be careful anytime we're making a public testimony or a public statement in the church that we're not just trying to make ourselves look good, that we're being honest and sincere. God is not afraid to execute the wicked. He did that in the first century. Ananias and Sapphira, dead on the spot. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be, be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For any, <clears throat> anyone who eats and drinks, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died because of the way they were taking the Lord's Supper without proper reverence for God and without respect for his people. God was in the midst of that church executing people. Revelation 2.19, I know your works. Jesus speaks to the church in Thyatira. Listen to this. This should make us sit up straight in our chairs. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This church sounds pretty good. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. Thank you, brother. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Guys, don't play with fire. Our God is a consuming fire. We don't come to church just to have a good time. You know, just we don't forget about who our God is. He's not safe, but he's good. You've heard that before. He is deadly dangerous, 
if you are hiding sin, if you are living in pride, if you're refusing to repent, if you're being crafty behind the scenes, if you're hiding sin today and you think nobody knows about it, God sees it right now. And it is serious in his sight. Don't try to deceive anybody about it. Stop wearing a mask. Come clean. Be honest. Repent. Receive forgiveness. Then you will have the joy of the chains being broken and the prison, the prison doors opening. Thankfully, the, the next two points will go rather quickly. And the reason is not because I'm trying to rush, but the reason is that there's not nearly as much text devoted to them. So the length of the first point reflects the fact that the passage dealt at length with expelling the wicked and executing the wicked. Deal with sin in our own hearts. Deal with the evil um, people in our midst so that God's church might be purified so that the bride will be ready for his return. That's what we're doing. We want to have a strong, established, established church. Second point was to exalt those who are faithful. Exalt those who are faithful. Look at verse seven. Remember what David told Solomon about the sons of Barzillai. Deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. In other words, exalt them. Give them a place of honor. Why? For with such loyalty, they met me when I fled with Absalom, your brother. So these men, when David had to flee the city, these men met him on the way and they provided food when David was in the wilderness. And David's looking back on that with favor and saying, you know what? Those guys are faithful. Exalt the faithful. Benaiah. He's another one that's exalted here. Look at verse 30. Five. Look at verse 35 of chapter 2. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. So Joab gets executed for his unfaithfulness. Benaiah, because of his faithfulness, is exalted. Benaiah is exalted over the army. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in place of Abiathar. So once again, we see Zadok exalted. Why? Why are these men exalted? Benaniah was loyal. He was one of David's mighty men described in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 23. You can write these references down if you want to go back and look at their track record. 2 Samuel chapter 23, Benaniah was one of David's mighty men. If you're familiar with the Bible, that's one of the famous passages in the Old Testament where it talks about David's mighty men. It's, it's really amazing. These guys are like superheroes. You should go read it. Benaniah was one of those mighty men. Uh, Benaiah was also the leader of David's bodyguards, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. You can see that in 2 Samuel 8, verse 18. And he remained loyal when David fled from Absalom in 2 Samuel 16, verse 6. In chapter 1, verse 8 of 1 Kings, it says that Zadok... The priests and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. In other words, they did not break ranks. They were not unfaithful when Adonijah was trying to put together a conspiracy. So Zadok remained faithful as well. He's faithful when David fled from Absalom, according to that story further back in 2 Samuel. And so again, we see that Zadok and Benaiah were exalted. These are faithful men. These are the kind of men who should be exalted. Godly men who can be trusted to promote and protect God's agenda. So how do we apply this principle? One way that we can exalt those or encourage those or build up or lift up those around us is when we're making disciples for Christ. We want to encourage, affirm, and praise our people when they're taking steps of faithfulness, like a young child who is learning to walk and take his first steps. These are great opportunities to exalt or build up others around you 
when you see excellent and praiseworthy things. You know, as you're discipling people, watch for those baby steps. Watch for those little things that they're doing well. When they're being kind to someone, when they go out evangelizing for the first time, when they're taking steps like being baptized, when they're taking all the time to put their testimonies together, when they're being faithful, that is a good time to come alongside as t- and, and to exalt or to lift up or to build up people. We're not installing them in public office necessarily, but we are exalting them. We are lifting them up. What about corporately? How do we exalt the godly when it comes to a corporate nature? We can install godly leaders. Vote. If we're going to vote on a leader, let's vote on the convictions, the character, and the competencies. But especially pay attention to the person's character. Why did, why did God choose David in the first place? Do you remember? It said that he was a man after God's own heart. It means he had a godly heart. He took after his father. A man after God's own heart. He was righteous. Character, we say, trumps competencies or skill. And it's not the other way around. The most important thing that we look for in a leader is humility and godly character. But if we see that and we see that faithfulness in that godly character, by all means, that's a person that we want in the lead position, making disciples. <clears throat> let's, move, let's move on to the, to the last point as we're winding, winding down here. So first one, execute the wicked or expel. Thank you. All those words are just getting get away from me. Execute or expel. Second one, we have exalt, exalting the godly. And the thirdly, and the third point is that we must be ever mindful and trusting in the promises of God. Ever mindful and trusting in the promises of God. So this is, this is an amazing point uh, in this story. Because in this story, we see David and Solomon remembering the promises and standing on the promises and making decisions based on the promises of God. So Solomon is establishing his throne based on the promises. But if you're going to see this, you have to look at a couple places in Scripture. Turn back with me quickly to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as we have this study in 1 Kings will often refer back to this chapter. It's one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. One of the Mount, I mean, it's like Mount Everest. It's, it's such an important chapter. Second Samuel chapter seven. And for the sake of time, I'll, I'll summarize a big chunk of it, that, that David wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, David, you're not the man, but I'm gonna have your son build a temple for me. Let's look at, let's drop down to verse 11. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Halfway through, right? Halfway through verse 11. I will give you rest from all your enemies. God is speaking to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, this is, this is huge. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So what is the promise, David, that one of your sons will sit on the throne forever? So the question is, which son is it? 
Who will be the son of David who sits on the throne forever? And if you look at this passage back in 1 Kings chapter 2, you're going to see that they were looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise. So this is why I say that King Solomon was building on the foundation of God's word. He was ever remembering the promises of God and trusting in the promises of God. So 1 Kings chapter 2. Look at verse 4. David, these are the last words of, uh, of, of David to Solomon. He says, the Lord will establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, they shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That's the promise of 2 Samuel seven seventeen. See, David is remembering back to that. He's like, Solomon, remember this. Follow the Lord in faithfulness and we will not uh, fail to see a descendant on the throne. Now look at verse 24. What did Solomon say here? Therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised. When did he promise that? Second Samuel seven seventeen. See, Solomon is building his kingdom. He's establishing his kingdom based on his promise. Look at verse 33. So shall the blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Solomon, how do you know that? 2 Samuel 7, 17. Finally, in verse 45. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Second Samuel seven seventeen. Look at that in this one passage, in this one chapter, four times there's a reference to that great, big, huge messianic promise. Question for you all today. Is Solomon the fulfillment of that promise? You might be tempted to think so. Because there are many similarities between Solomon and what God describes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. For instance, was Solomon the son of David? Yes. Was his throne firmly established? Yes. Was he the wisest man who had ever lived? Yes. Did he build a house for God? Yes. Did he have no military rivals? None for most of his life. Did the nations hear of his fame and come to see him and offer tribute? Yes. We'll see that as as Solomon's story unfolds. There are so many things that would make us think or even make the people of Israel think, this is the king, the son of David. But by the end of Solomon's life, we end up being very disappointed. Solomon is not the king. He falls tragically in chapter 11. At the end of his life, his life was filled with idolatry and, and lust, and he turned, his heart turned away from the Lord. He is not the king. We're waiting for another. So who is the king? This promise was made to Solomon. They were looking for the king. Has this promise been fulfilled? And the answer is yes. Jesus said when he walked this earth, One greater than Solomon is here in Luke chapter 11, verse 31. And turn with me in your Bibles to Luke. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will never be an end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the long-awaited Son of David. Have you heard the good news about Jesus, the Son of David, brothers and sisters, friends? Maybe you're here in this house today. You're not yet a Christian and you're wondering what this is all about. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, created all things. He came into the world. He was born of a virgin. So his bloodline was not corrupted like yours and mine by sin. Why? Because he was born of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, which you and I could never do. We sin every day. But Jesus never sinned, lived a perfectly righteous life faced every temptation that we do, but never caved in and, 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 and fell. He offered himself as a sacrifice. He was rejected by the Jewish nation. Crucified by the Romans 2,000 years ago and buried in the tomb for three days. But that's when the, the wonderful miracle of the resurrection happened. Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus broke the cycle of sin and death. And he has commanded every one of us today to repent, to come back to him, to be loyal to him, to be faithful to him. And if we will do that, he promises to give us the Holy Spirit and make us a new person. He will give you eternal life. What are you waiting for? Don't wait. If we're going to be a church that's firmly established, it must be filled with people who believe this promise and remember it daily and rely on the grace of God to fuel our lives of obedience. Do we want to have a strong church? We must deal with sin. We must exalt godly leaders. It makes all the sense. If we want to have a godly church, we need godly people leading the church to bless the church, to protect the church and to promote the gospel. And certainly, we must be ever remembering the gospel and this promise and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then our church will be strong and well-established. And may, there, may we never cease to have a preacher in the pulpit until the Lord returns. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, I can never do this scripture justice. You're going to have to make, um, you're going to have to open the word to people's hearts. Lord God, I pray that if anybody today is trapped in iniquity, trapped in sin, imprisoned in sin and darkness, God, that today the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the one who was greater than Solomon, the one who was crucified, had his hands pierced, had the stripes, the whippings on his back, who was marched out to the stake and crucified in front of everyone. God, that, that sinners in this house today would turn to Christ, look to Christ, believe in the gospel message, Trust in the Son of God and God that you would, by the Holy Spirit, bring that word home to our hearts today that we might believe it and that we might be saved, God. If there's anyone here today that is not in Christ, I pray that you would bring them into the family of God, that you would convict their heart of sin, that they would turn, they would repent, they would believe, that they would be saved, that they would receive the Holy Spirit, God. And not leave this place, just like Mario's testimony, that they would not leave this place today without being reconciled to you, Lord. And God, I pray for all of the saved, all of the saints, God, that we would, we would fight fiercely against our sin, against the sin of craftiness and deceitfulness and manipulation. 
and pride in the others from the text today, God, that we as a church would be wise about the leaders that we install, that we would look not to the gifting so much as we look at the heart. God, that we would not be fearing man, the gifts of man or the appearance of man, but God, that we would look to the heart and we would rely on you for wisdom and help to install the right leaders at the right time. And finally, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would build our lives on your word and God, especially the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the son of David and that we would believe that message and we would come back to it over and over again, day in and day out, and that it would empower us to live faithful and obedient lives. God, so that Central Baptist Church may be a long-standing, firmly established church of the living God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we